somebody in the control room messed with the wrong valves and instead of surfacing bow first, we come out arse end first and the prop got chewed up. But we only missed the bottom of the lock, allegedly, by 25 foot. So it was quite close to getting killed. This is Cold War Conversations. Thanks to Patreon supporter Jim Black for providing our intro today. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. John Andrews joined the Royal Navy in 1981 and went on to serve aboard HMS Repulse, one of the UK's Polaris nuclear missile submarines from 1982. His role was Missile Compartment Patrol, which included the security of the nuclear missile compartment as well as assisting in the maintenance of the missile tubes and the nuclear missiles themselves. John shares details of life aboard the ship including missile launch tests, the use of alcohol, practical jokes and escape procedures from a submerged submarine and many more. Now, this podcast relies on listener support to enable me to continue to capture these incredible stories and make them available to you for free. I'd really appreciate it if you could support my work and help to preserve Cold War history via one-off or monthly donations. If you'd like to learn more, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. You can also join our Facebook discussion group where the Cold War conversation continues between episodes. Just search for Cold War Conversations on Facebook. Now, this episode was recorded at the Hack Green Nuclear Bunker Soviet Threat Event, so you will hear some background noise. But I'm delighted to welcome John Andrews to our Cold War conversation. I served from Royal Navy from 15th of June 1981 till the 9th of January officially, uh, 1985, and then was discharged a month later. Um, joined HMS Repulse port crew uh, in September 1982, and then obviously I served on, went on a couple of patrols and workup periods, and then I'd done a short stint working in SESD, which was the submarine environmental support department, and then I was discharged shortly after that. Why did you join the Royal Navy? Uh, originally, quite quite ironically, probably the romantic version of uh, join the navy, see the world, you know, and see the sea, which I seen no sea and no world, <laughs> except the inside of a submarine. And what what was the initial induction like? What, what was uh, your training? basic training? Oh, I quite enjoyed basic training because obviously there's different challenges. Um, met people from different backgrounds, so that was quite interesting. And I come from sort of a working class background and I've previously been an electrician, a prince electrician for 18 months. I got made redundant so I'd always wanted to join the Navy and I thought this is the time to do it so I popped off to the careers office and signed up for myself for nine years and then went and told my parents that I would be joining the Navy in a few months time on the 15th of June. So yeah the basic training was six weeks long if I remember rightly at HMS Rally. It's just a mixture of PT, square bashing 
basically character building stuff, which I've sort of seen as a game, really. But some of, some of the younger kids, like the 16-year-olds, really suffered. What do you mean by character building? Can you give me a bit more detail on that? Yeah, there was like a, a lot of kit inspections and a lot of bollockings and a lot of like kit thrown around and like kit thrown out the window and catch a kit before it gets to the floor, that sort of stuff. Which for me, I always found quite funny because uh, I'm one of these people who find so-called serious situations quite humorous. And what, what was your first time at sea? I mean, did it, did you have good sea legs? or? Yeah, yeah. Um, no problem at all, really. The first time I went to sea with the other crew, which was the starboard crew, and I went on as a rider, which is like a spare body on the exercise period. And we was at, I think we was at sea for about two weeks on exercise, which I spent sleeping on a camp bed in between the missile tubes in my own department, which is the missile compartment. So the light, there are a lot of lights, a lot of noise, so I didn't get much sleep. But that's the way it goes. And how did you find being confined? At the time, I'd never had an issue with it, none at all. But obviously, uh, later on in life, it's come to bite me on the rear. So I've, now I've actually been diagnosed with PTSD-based claustrophobia and sort of I was having anxiety attacks, but I'm on medication now, so that's all under control. So I'm okay now, really. That's good to hear. Um, what what was your what were you being trained to do? What was going to be your role yeah. on the submarine? Well, I initially joined the navy as a weapons engineer and mechanic, uh, bracket O, which is, stands for ordnance. So it was heavy electrics and hydraulics, etc., and some electronics. But mainly, that would have on a ship that would involve missile systems, weapons systems. And things akin with that, or arm, even the armoury type stuff as well, depending on where you got slotted on the ship. But obviously when I got drafted to submarines, I then got drafted to a different submarine category that I expected to. And then I got told what job I was doing rather than had a choice in what job. And my actual title was MC Patrol, which is Missile Compartment Patrol. So basically, as a junior right, my, my job was just to do patrols around checking valve lineups. Security was probably one of the upper things. Uh, fire watch, and then helping the senior rates with all the maintenance on the missile systems and and the missile tubes themselves and the missiles. I understand that with the security, uh, did you have a club or something to? There was a nightstick. There was a roped off area around the control panel in the missile compartment and a nightstick, but it was the nightstick was always left inside the roped off area, and that was only there to get people away from the, 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 the sensitive material. Uh, the rest of the time, all I had was a torch. I'd be walking around with myself in a torch, basically. <laughs> and did, did you have to be vetted to take this role? Did they check your background? Uh, I would have thought so, but uh, there was no sort of direct vetting that I was aware of. Nobody ever said anything to me about or asked me any weird questions about my background or anything, no. So with the maintenance, what, what were you having to do? Were you having to crawl into small spaces? Yeah, and... uh, there was one job that was very tight space, which was the when we used to have to do the silicon in the bottom of the missile tubes, which basically helped with the pressure to launch the missiles at that stage. And from what I can remember, the crawl space was probably less than a metre high and very tight under the missile tube. And you had to sort of two of us wiggling there, me and a senior eight. And we used to have to pump the silicon in. And I'll, from memory, I'm sure it was over 2,000 PSI. 
and the senior eight made, made it um, quite obvious that if the eight was detached, that we'd get sliced up. So obviously that was a bit of a woody. Whether that was him uh, playing a trick on me, I don't know. But you know, it's one of them things. It would certainly focus your concentration. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm Most sure. definitely. And can you remember when you, you know, you first went through a missile launch test? Yeah, um, yeah. I still do my part three training, so I, was, I wasn't actually qualified as a submariner because you have to do what they call part three training where you get a large book and you have to work through different sections of the submarine. So, yeah, I think I was asleep in bed, recovering from whatever duties I'd been doing and had hardly any sleep. And then there was a, an alert for a WSRT, which was the missile warning. So I had to get out of bed as quick as I could, run to my department, get on a headset, and then I had a small manual that you used to have to go through. We'd done a sound check, a comms check. And then there was various parts where I had to align valves and, and say that it was ready, etc., and just go through that process. And there was everybody had a different role in the missile compartment to perform. And did you know it was a test? Yes, I did, yeah, because of the announcement. But we still treated it like a live fire. I mean, up to the point where it was actually fo- the empty tube was fired, then it was treated like the real thing. Right, so as as I understand it with Polaris, it sort of went to a hover just below the surface. Yeah. And so that, that was part of the, the, the test. So yeah. somebody else was doing the, the yeah. hover in yes. the um, yeah. control room. Yeah. And then you were preparing the uh, the the empty tube. So yes. not every tube was filled with missiles. No, but the, the most people on board would, wouldn't necessarily have that knowledge. Obviously, in the missile compartment, I had to know which tube was empty because that was the one we was doing the, doing the exercise on. Yeah, very important. Yeah, otherwise we'd be firing a real missile, so which wouldn't have been good. And the the day to day life on on board. I mean, yeah. you, you mentioned sleeping there. Was that yeah. difficult to to get rest? It was because obviously being on being on a semi war footing all the time. That's how, the only way I can put it. He was on edge anyway. So he was pulling up to a couple of duties a day. So he was doing like so many watches a day. And then there was, if you turned in for a sleep, everybody had to turn to to clean ship. So you had to get out of bed and clean whatever department you was got to do. And then you was, you'd have an exercise. It could be anything. It might not be a missile firing. It could be another exercise. It could be a fire drill. It could be anything. You was out your pit again and... You know, doing the exercise, so you had to get used to the lack of sleep. And, you know, and obviously a lot of people used to use a quarter amount of alcohol to sort of make sure they got some sleep. How readily was was alcohol available? Uh, well, allegedly it was two cans per man, per day, but I've never seen that. <laughs> it's more like a, up to a crate a day for some people. So, yeah, um, I think you could basically have as much as you want as long as you didn't cause any problems and you'd done your job. I, I guess you were almost permanently on duty, but when yeah. you were, like, not on duty, what what did you do to There's various yourself? things. There was quite odd. I'd actually had a lad who I used to knock around with Paddy who worked in the, in the uh, torpedo compartment. He was another WEM, the same as me, but he was a field gunner, so he was quite fit and he was a big lad. So me and him used to do a lot of weights, free weights, and pyramid press-ups and stuff like that. There was exercise bikes and rowing machines, which I made use of. 
And then the other the other one that most people enjoyed the best was either board games or watching movies. So we had, because we was on, on uh, Polaris, we had the choice of the most up-to-date movies that the military had. So we'd have a couple of movie showings a day. So basically whatever shift you was on, you could get to watch a movie. Did they ever show any submarine movies? Uh, not that I can remember. Uh, my first patrol, the most favourite movie, was Who Dares Wins with Lewis Collins. And that was like everybody loved that, and we kept having it on. So No, I can imagine, yeah, it's a pretty gung-ho yeah. uh, movie, that one. It, and It prompted some uh, kidnapping of uh, officers. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Uh, teddy bears and toys and stuff out the wardroom with uh, makeshift SAS pillowcase um, sort of balaclavas. <laughs> so there was it, there was fun on oh, the yeah, boat as yeah. well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. What sort of pra- what other practical jokes did you get up to? Uh, the other one was there was a guy who worked, he was a, a petty officer who worked up in the control room and he was bald and he had a beard and everybody used to call him Furry Egg. And he had a specific mug that he always used to drink his tea and that was always in the control room, so that got kidnapped and a ransom note attached, etc. and things like that. And the other the other one that most people got up to was when we used the compactor. There was a specific name, and I think it was, I'm almost sure it's Peter the Eater. It was the nickname for it. And you used to have to phone up the control room. But I used to call it Michael the Muncher, George the Gruncher, and all sorts of things, anything except for Peter the Eater, just for a laugh. But, you know. And sorry, what was the compactor used for? Uh, it was for compacting all the gash, basically, all the food waste used to get compacted into. Um, into aluminium tubes that you used to have to make out and fired out, fired overboard to get rid of the rubbish, obviously the food waste. Right, so somewhere in the mid Atlantic, there's piles and piles <laughs> of your waste still yeah, there. Yeah, de- definitely. Yeah, <laughs> or just the containers. I'd imagine the waste would have gone by now, but definitely containers. How long were the missions that you were on? Yeah, they varied, but uh, the, the average could be from eight weeks to twelve weeks. I mean, more, more personal patrols. I think I've done a, I've done an eight and a eight and a ten. I think or an eight and a twelve. I, I can't really remember now because it's been a long time ago. But um, there was always a two-week workup period prior to that, and then we come back in, and then store ship, and then put the missiles on board and all the ordnance, etc. And then we'd go on patrol proper. But that was like to sort out any niggles and make sure the crew was basically tested by by onboard uh, examiners to make sure he was ready to to do the patrol and that everybody was doing what they're supposed to be doing. And being being in the uh, the missile compartment, yeah. how aware of you were 
what was going on in other areas of the ship. So if if they picked up a a contact nearby yeah. and were manoeuvring away from that, would you have been aware of no, that? Wouldn't know nothing about it at all. Uh, the only thing he was aware of, you had a generalisation of the submarine in each department because during your part three training, you had to tick off and and learn each department. And there was a thing called an EBS system, which was an air breathing system, where you had to plug a, a mask in. So if we had a fire, there was an EBS run that you had to plug in. So you had to know where all the masks was on board the submarine, where the EBS route was. And you got tested, and part of the test was, in your own department, you was given a blacked-out mask. And you had, you had to work your way around the department, going from one... EBS unit to the other, that was part of the training. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's different. Yeah, yeah, very, very different. And presumably you did training on how to escape from the submarine yeah. in the event of an accident. Can yeah, you talk yeah, me through sure, that? Yeah, yeah, at the time it was at Gosport at HMS Dolphin. There was a place called the SEST, which is a submarine escape training tank. Uh, everybody else called it the tank. And obviously submarines every four years had to qualify for that. And it's stamped in your paybook, so if anybody ever said there was a submariner, it was quite easy to find out whether there was or not, because you just check the paybook. Um, but that only qualifies you for escape training. You've got to have your dolphins before you're actually a submariner officially. So that was another thing he was issued with. But the escape training was, um, from memory, I'd done two free ascents from 30 foot, one from 60 and they was like in an airlock, and all you had on was sewing trunks, uh, goggles, nose clip, which was attached to the goggles, and like an half-inflated life jacket, and basically it was pressurised to the depth, and your backside was pushed against the hatch, and you was basically told to take a deep breath and shoved out, and then you had to blow all the way out to the surface, because obviously your lungs are pressurised at that depth, and if you held your breath, you'd pop your lungs. But it was a bit scary when you got towards the surface because you run out of breath. So there was a small pocket of air still in your lungs, which apparently is always in there, even when you die. There's still that pocket in there. And that reinflated your lungs because of the pressure. So you got a second wind and then broke surface. That must have been that is exciting. exciting. Yeah, it was definitely exciting. Exciting, Yoni, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, then the, the most exciting one was the 100 foot one from the single man escape tower at the bottom of the tank. For that, he was suited up in a big orange suit. It had a nud and it had a, a breathing system, an umbilical that plugged in to the escape tower and it pumped it up with oxygen. Uh, and obviously that was done to the same pressure as the tank pressurised. So he was already breathing that pressure in. And there was a small window, and I can remember one of the tank guys, they call them swim guys, that's from my memory. And uh, he already had a pre pre-signal thing where if it was all good you put your thumb up if it wasn't you put it sideways and if not you put it down so I got to a point where we, the hatch was just about to go and one of my ears wouldn't pop and I was in absolutely agony and I put it sideways and he went and then I put it down and he went taping light so I knew what he was saying the next minute the hatch opened and all the water come in I bobbed up and there's two divers there and they clagged me onto this line that went straight up the centre of the tank and to my re recollection, it took 25 seconds or thereabout to go 100 foot. It was one ride and off. And you actually come out of the water past your knees. 
and then you, you you end up on your back and obviously you float and somebody drags you to the side. And with every one of those escapes, you have to stand on a line for about 10 minutes to make sure you de no decompression problems and there was a decompression tank there. But um, due to a quirk of fate, I ended up doing mine with uh, some Italian special forces and they couldn't speak English and I couldn't speak Italian So because I was the only right in there and I was covered in tattoos already. They thought I was somewhat special, but I was just a normal <laughs> normal jack. But uh, that was quite funny because they was treating me the same as them, but I wasn't, you know, so I done mine with them. Because I, I did the, the uh, free ascent, I think I'd done the free ascent with my class, but when it come to doing the 100 foot, I couldn't do that because I had, I'd had a cold. So I got back classed with the 100 foot one till I was healthy enough to do it. Hence why I probably had the hearing problem when I when I was in the hundred foot one. I yeah. still probably got a bit of a cold. And you you mentioned to me earlier something around a, um, a transmitter or a uh, diaphragm detonator. Yeah. yeah. And when we used to load the missile tubes, or well, the missiles, the, there's a diaphragm that fitted on the top, and the best way of explaining it is like a giant communion wafer, and it had a weakened part in it. I, I believe it was quartered, so it was like a cross, but it could have been it could have been one line. My, my mind's not really focused on that, but I do remember there was four detonators per tube. So these detonators was like a little diode, uh, very quite small, probably a couple of mil with some legs on, and then we was told that obviously any static would set them off, and if they went off, they'd blow your fingers off. So. That was a bit of a worry, seeing as you've got like up to 15 operational tubes and you've got to put four on each tube and it's freezing cold and you've got a nylon waterproof jacket on and probably nylon waterproof trousers, depending on uh, you know what type of person you was. And then all you had was a little bracelet, it was classed as an anti-static bracelet with a small lead and a crocodile clip to clag onto some metal. So that was a bit of a worry, but it was still fun as well, so it was one of them, you know. So you, you were actually in the missile tube to, to do it this? It was on top of it, the hatch was opened up. Right. And obviously the, the diaphragm's already been fitted. And then we're climbing inside the missile tube on the top to put the, the diaphragm detonators in. Right, and what was the role of these detonators? Basically, when the, when the missile was launched, just before the missile, the cone and the warhead, the, the missile, the top of the diaphragm, the detonators would blow up and it would come through without damaging the, the warhead. Right, so it's... And obviously also it kept the water out. Yeah. So it was like to release the cover yeah. on top of the warhead before, just before it got launched? Uh, no, not the warhead itself, it's separate. It was actually part of the missile uh, the missile tube rather than the actual warhead. Okay, and the okay, missile. okay. If you can imagine, like, you open a bottle, bottle lid and it's got that, that thin layer of foil on the top to stop the water coming out it's it's that sort of thing nothing goes in and nothing comes out that's a great description i can understand <laughs> that one yeah well i thought that's best way to do it for people who've got you know you've got to try and visualize something you've never seen yeah no that's 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 fine the other thing that you were mentioning to me before was around um some sort of survival transmitter that would have yeah, gone yeah, up with the yeah. with the crew can yeah. you talk about that yeah, from memory, it was uh, given to every fifth or sixth man and basically got strapped to your legs and fried your nuts because it was radioactive. 
So you'd have your escape suit on and every fifth or sixth poor person would get this thing strapped to the, like, a, uh, like a beacon, basically. And got strapped to your leg and fried your nuts. Uh, also, you had to wear a nice nappy before you put the suit on because obviously if you defecated or weed yourself and you was in cold water, you'd have that in the small, you'd be settling in the small of your back and you'd be paralysed, which... You know, it does sound the best, but obviously they've thought things through. In a big orange suit. And then apparently when you hit the surface, you all tie yourselves to each other and you're floating around with these beacons attached to you, throwing your nuts till you get rescued. Uh, you're giving me some great descriptions here, Johnny. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant descriptions. Um, how did they monitor your exposure to radiation? Uh, the only time you had it monitored was if you actually was going in and out of a reactor compartment, which most people never did. Uh, the only time I ever done that was not while I was serving on board the Sunbreen, but when I was working for SESD, which was the Sunbreen Environmental Support Department. And what we used to deal with was contaminated items on board the subs or going into the reactor compartments and doing cleanups and relagging. And also, if there was an incident on base, we was the ones who had to react to the incidents on base and decontaminate things and areas. So that was quite interesting as well, because I learned quite a bit about radiation. And obviously, I was exposed to a bit more than I expected to be. But, you know, it's one of those things. I've, I've fathered three kids who are right, they're no defects. And I've got two grandkids that I'm fine, so I presume the radiation had no effect. Yeah. What, what would you say was your sort of hairiest situation that you got involved in? Uh, well, there's, there's, there's probably the two that I'd want to talk about. There's one that I want, don't want to talk about. Hairiest in, in safety-wise, it was we had, we had an incident where he was on exercise and uh, somebody in the control room messed with the wrong valves and instead of surfacing bow first, we come out arse end first and the prop got chewed up but we only missed the bottom of the lock allegedly by 25 foot so it was quite close to getting killed but at the time I was in the missile compartment hanging off a missile tube like in a cartoon with my legs parallel to the deck and things was rolling around and I just found it really funny but you know that's the way I am I'm, I'm wired, wired in them circumstances rather than scream or shout or laugh well, I guess that's a good psychological position to be in on a yeah, submarine because yeah. there's somebody panicking on a submarine. Yeah, not is, good. Is we not have, I have good. seen that. I've seen somebody trying to open an hatch and they got it with hammers and tools till they released what they was trying to do, and that was in my department as well. And then they was dragged off down to the medical to get injected and calmed down. And w were there any crew who sort of decided this wasn't for them? There was quite a few. I think with a lot of people had issues while they was on board. Some of, some of them was quite bad alcoholics. Some people was quite angry and depressive. Other people was like just just annoying. Because obviously, if you can imagine, not everybody on board the submarine is going to be a cup of tea, even in the junior rates. And you've got to live with these people for 10, 12 weeks. You might not have to work with them, but you've got to live with them. And a lot of things come out by the time you're at the end of your patrol. And they used to, the one thing that was like light relief, which you probably don't know about this, because this is probably, I've never told you about this. We love an exclusive, John. This is definitely an exclusive. There was a magazine called The Sunday Slag, which used to get produced and Xeroxed 
in, in my department, so I did get to see a lot of it. Basically, what it was was people would go around with notebooks and they'd listen to people's conversations and then they'd get written down. And the next thing you know, what you thought was a private conversation was now everybody's entertainment with embellishments and it was in the Sunday slag every Sunday. So we all used to look forward to reading that because we wanted to see who was going get, to get, you know, get beasted and slagged off in that. But that was quite funny. And did that include officers as well? Everybody. Everybody was fair game. Everybody. In fact, you know, there was a lot of things about junior rights, but the senior rights and officers, there was no, there was no escape. And and how were the officers in terms of how they, you know, worked with you and and treated you? From from memory, I mean, I never had any problem with any officers whatsoever. I think if I had any problems, there was with senior rights, not with the officers. The officers were very professional. Uh, always polite, and I, I can't even remember any officers actually using bad language, which, looking back, in them circumstances, that takes some sort of control, and, you know, and you know, you've got to be a different sort of person, you know, to be able to do that, because most of the language was disgusting, you know, even by my standards. <laughs> and I'm, I've heard some things, but some of them was really sad. But I think that's the way coping mechanism for some people, you know, especially working-class people. But it is what it is. I've got no complaints about any of the officers. In fact, the skipper on board, Marshall Green, he was a really nice guy and he was quite easy to talk to. It was him who actually I approached before I left the submarine to get off the submarine. And then he got me the job at SESD, which is the submarine environmental support department. And I'd had a few incidents on board the submarine, which I ain't going to get into, but I got blamed for a couple of things, which was nothing to do with me. But I was the one who everybody thought had done it, so that was not the best. When I was only young myself, I was only like 21, but then, you know, not really, I would say immature as well, because obviously 21 is nothing, is it? You know, it's an immature age. I've got kids older than that now, and I still think I'm kids. So, so is it all really. Were you able to communicate with home while you were on? Uh, no, but there was a one-way communication where you used to get these things called family grams and they'd fill them in and you'd get like a little thin ticker tape message that to memory was, I think it was 38 words and two of those was your name and your rank. So obviously depending on how they'd worded the message, <laughs> sometimes it never made sense or it was like a really short message and it was a waste of a family gram. Because you used to look forward to it, because obviously it was your only contact with the outside world. And some people never understood how important it was. You know, there's people who actually lost the plot because they'd had either bad news or the message was wrong or they was waiting for a family gram and they hadn't had them on for weeks and everybody else is getting them. It, you know, it can have a, quite a bad you know, effect on people's psyche, really. Yeah, because I heard that the officers checked them before they went. Yeah, there was. Yeah, yeah out in yeah. case it was bad news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, I can remember one guy was, and and this is hundred percent true. He was, a, he was he was a petty officer or a chief petty officer, and he wasn't told, but his daughter had been sexually assaulted. They've known they'd known before we finished the patrol, and even when we was on the surface, coming back, they knew. And they never transferred him off. And he never got off till we, we got into port. So they could have got him off earlier. You know, and it was, it won't, he didn't have a good effect on him. He, he really lost the plot. 
Yeah, no, it's hard to imagine yeah. uh, new news like that. Yeah. As you got towards the end of a patrol, were mm-hmm. you looking forward to the end of it? Or yeah. How, oh, yeah. How did you... <laughs> How did you feel? Well, I've heard that some, you know, some members of the crew, they just got so used to that life that they they trying to adjust when they Mm. came home was quite difficult. Yeah, I think for me it was probably the opposite because I'd only done a few workups and two two actual patrols. I hadn't really had the experience of like being uh, institutionalised to that type of stuff, you know. So I was still looking forward to going home, and I quite regularly, whether I was on crew or off crew. If I could go home, even for a weekend, I'd travel from Scotland to the Midlands, uh, which I'd have to six and a half hours by train, you know, and then catch a train from Birmingham or a taxi from Birmingham back up to the black country. So it was a bit of a a jaunt just to come home for a weekend, because obviously you've got to do that on the way back as well. So I always used to catch the train back from Birmingham. It was 20 past midnight I used to catch a train. So I used to get in for about seven into Ellingsborough just in time to clock back on for my job or whatever at 8 o'clock when I was off crew. So you'd get back to your mess, change, and you'd be back at work again like nothing had happened. And when the the hatches open for the first time <laughs> yeah. uh, after a you know multi-month yeah. um, trip, yeah. what was that moment like? For me, I found it... I found the smell was quite potent and made me, it used to make me feel sick because it smelt of obviously salt from the seawater but there was a fishy smell to it as well and after breathing in I suppose recycled air and quite pure I suppose to a degree apart from the male sp- smells that you'd expect in a confined space it was it was very pungent and you know it was, took some getting used to I used to feel sick for at least an hour when we first opened the hatches, and then obviously, then you got used to it. And you're back to breathing proper air, you know. Yeah, a, I get. I guess it's almost almost too much for the senses after yeah. you've been, as you say, breathing yeah. recycled yeah. air. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's like um, I think if it had been done gradually, maybe not the case. But obviously, they've got to de- they have to degas the batteries and all that sort of stuff. So it's more to do with safety as well. So they've got to get the hatches open, degas the batteries. And then after that's done, people are usually allowed to smoke then. But that's one point where you're not allowed to smoke. You know, is all them degassing the batteries. Right. For obvious reasons, you know. <laughs> not not safe. And if you, you look back at your time yeah. on Polaris, is there anything you miss about that? Um, the camaraderie ship and some of the guys, there I knew I had some good friends, Um and I did like the fact that I was doing an important job, even though I didn't particularly enjoy being on a submarine, if that makes sense. It probably didn't make no sense. But the fact that I was doing, I felt I was doing my duty properly, and the fact that there was like a small elitist type of unit, I suppose, really, because of the amount of people that actually serve on at sea at that time, any given time, um, you felt a little bit special. But you also... In the bigger picture, you realised if you ever done your job, then that wouldn't be a good thing either. But people would have still done it because that's what you're there for. Well, how did you feel about that that responsibility? Because essentially, you were going mm. to launch something that was going to kill millions yeah, and yeah, millions yeah. of civilians. Yeah, I would at the time I would have done it because it was my duty. But not until I left did it really sort of sink in 
and I did have initially have a few nightmares about it, about nuclear holocausts and stuff. But it's a two-edged sword because one, you stopping by having a nuclear deterrent, you're stopping other people from nuking you. But in the other hand, it's a thing that's been invented that's phenomenally horrendous. Really, you couldn't think of anything worse, you know, to do to people. So it's a double-edged sword for me, because obviously I thought, for me personally, I think the Cold War kept peace, world peace, not peace in countries, but world peace, because obviously the bigger powers knew if they'd done a nuclear strike, there'd be a retaliatory strike. So there's no actual winners, and obviously there would have been a a massive devastation, probably worldwide, because if everybody decided to launch, then, you know, the... Nobody knows where the targets was, so nobody knows where they're coming from or who's going to get them. So it would have been a, a really bad thing. But on the upside of that, it stopped a lot of world wars, in my opinion, that could have... Now, we've had small wars, but not like we had in World War II. I think the atom bomb being dropped on the Japanese in World War II was like a signal to the world, this is what could happen. And I think most people took notice, even the Russians. Yeah. Yeah, and and that Japanese bomb was tiny compared yeah, yeah. to the firepower yeah, definitely, of what yeah. your submarine Yeah, had. well, apparently, um, from memory, uh, one of the missiles was equivalent to all the bombs dropped in World War II, ordnance-wise, and both the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So that's just one missile. And obviously we had multiples, you know, up to 15 missiles at a time. And then obviously the American submarines was even bigger, and some of the Russian ones was even bigger than that. Plus, then you got your planes that delivering nuclear packages as well. So yeah. yeah, it's it was worrying, but also the upside of that as well is it was also nobody in the right mind is going to launch a nuclear missile. So you know, did you have to be particularly quiet on the boat? Uh, not usually. Um, there was times where we had like we we run quiet, and the one from memory was we actually got followed by a Russian submarine, but I've no idea of the distance away it was, but we was told about it, and we did have to run quiet. There was no movies, no use of exercise stuff, no music, all the rest of it, and obviously the sonars and raid doors that they used and all the other equipment was on passive, which I think they am anyway, but there, there would be no active stuff going on. Um, and I believe that this Russian submarine had got a nitrogen sniffing device on it, on the nose cone of it, and because it got that in the bows, it could follow the plume of nitrogen that was coming out the back of our submarine when we was making our own water. So, so from the desalination plant, that was the nitrogen was being discharged out of seawater, and that was picked up by the Russians, which is pretty clever, really. That is really smart, and not something I'd 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 heard before. That's yeah. really, that's really that's really interesting. Is there anything about your career on Polaris that we've not covered, or any anecdote or story that you think is worth? The only anecdote for me to add is that obviously I knew the submarine was big because of the department I was on was quite big, and that was only a third of the submarine. But we actually after that incident with the prop. Uh, we had to go into dry dock, and when you actually see one in dry dock, you realise the vastness and the size of it. 
Yeah, it's absolutely awesome to see in a dry dock. And then you think, well, some of the Russian ones, they'd be like three times as big. Yeah, and even the American ones is bigger than ours. So you think there's some big beasts in the sea. Really there is. Big. I mean, have you seen the photo? I think it's the Typhoon class, yes. the Soviet yeah. one. And yeah. that is huge. And it yeah. had like a plunge pool yeah. in there for the yeah. for the crew as yeah. well. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, there would be, you know, the, obviously the bigger the submarine, the more things that can fit into it. And obviously, if the crew's going to be at sea for a long, long period of time, you've got to have something for them to... Because American crews run dry, so they have no alcohol. But I think they've got a drug problem, from what I can remember. I'd imagine the Russians would drink. I would imagine it'd be mainly vodka. And uh, obviously, that's part of Russian culture, plunge pools and all that stuff. So, yeah, I think it's like a cultural thing, which is probably good. What, what were the... Washing facilities like on Polaris, could you shower whenever you wanted? or, or was oh, that... Yeah, I, I, I was allowed to shower whenever I wanted. Uh, obviously, you might have to wait sometimes if somebody was in there. From recollection, there was three showers. Uh, obviously, there was open, like open showers. And there was three or four traps, which was... There's a story about them. Uh, quite often, they'd, they'd uh, the pressure build back up and you'd have like a backfiring up the toilets. Um, you could, if you want in the toilet, you could hear the people inside panicking, trying to open the doors because I was concertina doors and stainless steel loos. And uh, I've seen a few people come out covered in facial matter and paper and stuff when they've gone over them. But that's quite funny if you're in the shower, but not so funny if you're in the toilet. But yeah, that's probably the only, yeah, never had a problem keeping clean. The only thing that they never really recommended is we cut air off, you know. Some people shaved, most people never bothered. You know, there was no sort of strict rule whether you'd done one or the other, but air cuts was a no-no, unless they specifically run out an order for one day where they might do the air cuts and then I'd have to change a load of filters because obviously it would be like, uh, from what I can remember, there was like um, carbon filters. So they'd have to change all them because of all the air particles in, in the atmosphere. But... Most people just grew their hair in the beards. So you'd come back looking like a real U-boat crew then, wouldn't you? <laughs> but not smelling like one. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. no. Diesel submariners, believe me, they smell totally different to what we was called by them was bomber queens because we had a, to them we had a good lifestyle. I've interviewed a few diesel submariners. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. There's a friendly rivalry there. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's, a very, there's a friendly rivalry between each submarine and type of submarine, the crews as well, the port and starboard crews on, on Polaris, and even more rivalry between the Navy and the Royal Marines, because they were based on our base and they wasn't allowed off base, so they thought it was their base. What would you say was your proudest moment? Um, getting me dolphins, when I actually passed my part three training and I was actually presented with the other part three trainees with the dolphins, and. You had your dolphins pinned on your uniform and, uh, well, we didn't have it on your uniform because we had number eights on. But there was like a bit of a tradition where people had put the dolphins and come along and fist. So you ended up with two marks on your chest where the dolphin pins had stuck in your chest. But, you know, it was just one of them things, I think. Yeah, another practical joke. Yeah, yeah. Never yeah. ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's further information such as photos and videos in our episode notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. 
Now this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.